What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Before I start the show, I feel like there should be a warning. I'm reading public domain books and short stories and whatever else. Uh, Some of it may be offensive. I don't read these things before, so I don't review it, so it's kind of just by chance. So if anything in here is offensive, or most likely with these really old books, uh, bigoted, uh, don't hold me responsible. I'll be just as surprised as you are. And with that, enjoy this episode of Leaves of Glen. I am Glenn Nuzzles. So what happened in the last two chapters we read, chapters uh, 12 and 13? Oh, me? Oh, I'm fine. Thanks for asking. And, uh, you don't want to hear about it. I don't want to bore you. So anyways, in chapter uh, 12, uh, Basil runs into Dorian on the street. What? Oh, um, nothing. Yeah, I got a little something on my mind, but I don't want to bore you. I don't want to uh, waste your time. I know you're not interested. So Basil runs into Dorian on the street. Uh, and, Dor- and Basil's been sitting in Dorian's house pretty much all day long. Huh? Okay, all right, fine. I'll tell you since you're dragging it out of me. Uh, my daughter and I witnessed a shooting. It wasn't a big deal. It's fine. Let's move on. So Dorian wants to show him the painting. Hmm? Well, my daughter was coming back from a party. And we were chatting in the car, so I decided to keep driving around for a while. And uh, next thing you know, I wound up in the city, uh, indiscriminate, because I'm not going to tell you where I live. Uh, And we were over by the Orpheum in the city. And a car in front of us just decided to stop, uh, just outside of this intersection, uh, stopping us in the middle of the intersection, so we couldn't actually move forward or anything So I waited until I saw that the car was stopped because there was some crazy person in front of him putting on a big show, getting loud. And uh, the passenger got out of the car, went around, got into a fist fight. So next thing you know, there was like five guys all punching each other in the face and stuff. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to take a left here or a right and uh, let's move on down the street and get out of here. And uh, as we were turning and driving away, uh, heard a gunshot go off. So that was pretty scary uh, with my daughter in the car. And uh, then there was a minivan in front of me, and they stopped in the middle of the street because they wanted to watch. And I was honking at those jerks, like, get moving. We want to get away from the gunfire. Uh, I have my daughter in the car. Uh, And eventually they reluctantly kind of pulled forward. It was amazing. So, uh, yeah, that's weighing heavily on me that uh, there was 
gunshots going off while my baby was in the car, uh, my daughter saw the whole thing and said that the guy pointed the gun at a woman who was suddenly around. So, uh, terrifying. Terrifying evening. Uh, needless to say, it's affected me. But uh, it doesn't affect recording the show. So, chapter 12. Basil runs into Dorian on the street. Basil's been sitting at Dorian's house the whole time. Hmm? No, I'll be fine. Thanks, though, for asking. So, uh, runs into him on the street. He's in his house all night. Dorian says, why don't you come on in? I'm going to show you the painting. Uh, that was chapter 12. Chapter 13 was just a lot of chatter until finally uh, Dorian shows him the painting. And uh, then Basil can't believe it's really his same work, that it's somebody who defaced it. And uh, Dorian starts crying. And then for kind of no reason, Dorian kills Basil. Uh, then tries to set up a Columbo-like perfect murder, much like the murder I saw this evening uh, with my daughter in the car. Uh, and then he says at the end that he needs the help of Alan Campbell, which I think is the, the framer from before. So that's where we left off. So now let's dive into uh, a good, good book. Hmm? No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Chapter 14 At nine o'clock the next morning, his servant came in with a cup of chocolate on a tray and opened the shutters. Dorian was sleeping quite peacefully, laying on his right side with one hand underneath his cheek. He looked like a boy who had been tired out with play or study. The man had to touch him twice on the shoulder before he woke, and he was as opened his eyes and a faint smile passed across his lips as though he had been lost in some delightful dream. Yet he had not dreamed at all. His night had been untroubled by any images of pleasure or pain, but the youth smiles without any reason. It is one of his chiefest charms. He turned around and, leaning upon his elbow, began to sip his chocolate. The mellow November sun came streaming into the room. The sky was bright, and there was a genial warmth in the air. It was almost like a morning in May. Gradually, the events of the preceding night crept with silent, blood-stained feet into his brain and reconstructed themselves there with terrible distinctness. He winced at the memory of all that he had suffered, and for a moment, the same curious feeling of loathing for Basil Hallward that had made him kill him as he sat in the chair came back to him, and he grew cold with passion. The dead man was still sitting there, too, and in the sunlight now. How horrible that was. Such hideous things were for the darkness, not for the day. He felt that if he brooded on what he had gone through, he would sicken or grow mad. There were sins whose fascination was more in the memory than in the doing of them. Strange triumphs that gratified the pride more than the passions and gave the intellect a quickened, quickened uh, sense of joy greater than any joy that they brought or could ever bring to the senses. But this was not one of them. It was a thing to be driven out of the mind, to be drugged with poppies, to be strangled, lest it might strangle one itself. When the half-hour struck, he passed his hand across his forehead and then got up hastily and dressed himself with even more than his usual care. 
giving a good deal of attention to the choice of his necktie and scarf pin and changing the rings more than once. Oh, he wore a lot of rings. He spent a long time also over breakfast, tasting the various dishes, talking to his valet about some new liveries that he was thinking of getting made for the servants at Selby, and going through his correspondence. At some of the letters, he smiled. Three of them bored him. (laughs) One he read several times over and then tore up with a slight look of annoyance in his face. That awful thing, a woman's memory, as Lord Henry had once said. After he had drunk his cup of black coffee, he wiped his lips slowly with a napkin, motioned to his servant to wait, and, going over to the table, sat down and wrote two letters. One he put in his pocket. The other he handed to the valet. Take uh, this round to 152 Hertford Street, Francis, and if Mr. Campbell is out of town, get his address. As soon as he was alone, he lit a cigarette and began sketching upon a piece of paper, drawing first flowers and bits of architecture, and then human faces. Suddenly, he remarked that every face that he drew seemed to have a fantastic likeness to Basil Hallward. He frowned, and getting up, went over to the bookcase and took out a volume at hazard. He was determined that he would not think about what had happened until it became absolutely necessary that he should do so. Sorry, drinking coffee. It's late. When he had stretched himself on the sofa, he looked at the title page of the book. It was Gautier Zimax et Camille's Charpentier's Japanese Paper Edition, with the Jacquemart etching. The binding was of citron green leather with a design of gilt trellis work and dotted pomegranates. It had been given to him by Adrian Singleton. As he turned over the pages, his eyes fell on the poem about the hand of Lassierre, the cold yellow hand du supplice encore ma la vie, with its downy red hairs and its de gois de fond. He glanced at his own white taper fingers shuddering slightly in spite of himself, and passed on, till he came to those lovely stanzas upon Venice. And uh, this whole poem is in French, so I'm not going to read that part. How exquisite they were. As one read them, one seemed to be floating down the green waterways of the pink and pearl city. Seated in a black gondola with silver prow and trailing curtains, The mere lines looked to him like those straight lines of tortoise blue that follow one as one pushes out to the Lido. The sudden flashes of color reminded him of the gleam of the opal and iris-throated birds that flutter round the tall, honeycombed champanel, or stalk with such stately grace through the dim, dust-stained arcades. Leaning back with half-closed eyes, he kept saying over and over to himself, Duvant en façade rose. Surely marble donascular. Okay, how much more French do we got to read here? The whole of Venice was in those two lines. He remembered the autumn that had passed there and a wonderful love that had stirred him to a mad, delightful follies. There was romance in every place, but Venice, uh, like Oxford, had kept the background for romance. And uh, true romantic, the, the background was everything. Or almost everything. Basil had been with him part of the time and had gone over Tintoret 
Oh, I have text messages from my daughter. I wonder if it's... Nah, nothing. Poor Basil. <coughs> what a horrible way for a man to die. He sighed and took up the volume again and tried to forget. He read of the swallows that fly in and out of the little cafe at Smyria, where the hadjis sit counting their amber beads and the turbaned merchants smoke their long tasseled pipes and talk gravely to each other. He read of the obelisk in the Place de la Concorde that weeps tears of granite in its lonely sunless exile and longs to be back by the hot lotus-covered Nile. The, where there are sphinxes, rose-red ibises, uh, white vultures with gilded claws, and crocodiles with small uh, barrel eyes that crawl over the green steaming mud. He began to brood over those verses, which, drawing music from kiss-stained marble, tell of what curious statue that Gautier compares to a continental voice, the Monsieur Charmant, that touches in the a puffer-free room of the Louvre. This is driving me crazy. But after a time, the book fell from his hand. He grew nervous, and a horrible fit of terror came over him. What if Alan Campbell should be out of England? Days would elapse before he'd come back. Perhaps he might refuse to come. Uh, what could he do then? Every moment was of vital importance. They had been great friends once, five years before, almost inseparable indeed. Then, in the intimacy, it had come suddenly to an end. When they met in society now, it was only Dorian Gray who smiled. Alan Campbell never did. He was an extremely clever young man, though he had no real appreciation of the visible arts. And whatever little sense of beauty and poetry he possessed, he had gained entirely from Dorian. His dominant intellectual passion was for science. At Cambridge, he had spent a great deal of his time working in the laboratory and had taken a good class in the natural science tripos of this year. Indeed, he was still devoted to the study of chemistry and had a laboratory of his own in which he used to shut himself up all day long, greatly to the annoyance of his mother, who had set her heart on his standing for Parliament and had a vague idea that a chemist was a person who made up prescriptions. He, the... Uh, was an excellent musician, however, as well, and played both the violin and the piano better than most amateurs. In fact, it was music that had first brought him and Dorian Gray together. Music and that indefinable attraction that Dorian seemed to be able to exercise whenever he wished, and indeed exercised often without being conscious of it. They met at Lady Berkshire's the night that... Rubenstein played there, and after that, used to always be seen together at the opera and wherever good music was going on. For 18 months, their intimacy lasted. Campbell was always either at Selby Royal or in Grosvenor Square. To him, as to many others, Dorian Gray was the type of everything that is wonderful and fascinating in life. Whether or not a quarrel had taken place between them, no one ever knew. But suddenly, people remarked that they scarcely spoke when they met and that Campbell seemed always to go away early from any party at which Dorian Gray was present. He had changed. Two, as strangely melancholy at times, appeared almost to dislike hearing music and would never himself play, giving as his excuse when he was called upon that he was so absorbed in science that he had no time left in which to practice. 
And this was certainly true. Every day he seemed to become more interested in biology. And his name appeared once or twice in some scientific reviews in connection with certain curious experiments. <coughs> this is uh, the man Dorian Gray was waiting for. Every second he kept glancing at the clock. As if the minutes went by, he became horribly agitated. At last he got up and began to pace up and down the room, looking like a beautiful caged thing. He took long, stealthy strides. His hands were curiously cold. The suspense eh, became unbearable. Time seemed eh, to him to be crawling with feet of lead. Well, he, eh, by monstrous winds, eh, was being swept towards the jagged edge of some black cleft of precipice. He knew what was waiting for him there and saw it indeed, and shuddering, crushed with dank hands, his burning lids as though he would have robbed the very brain of sight and driven the eyeballs back into their cave. It was useless. The brain had its own food on which it battened, and the imagination, made grotesque by terror, twisted and distorted as if a living thing by pain, danced like some foul puppet on a stand and grinned through moving masks. Then, suddenly, time stopped for him. Yes, that blind, slow-breathing thing crawled no more, and horrible thoughts, time being dead, raced nimbly in and front and dragged a hideous future from its grave and showed it to him. He stared at it. Its very horror made him stone. At last the door opened and his servant entered. He turned, glazed eyes upon him. Mr. Campbell, sir, said the man. A sigh of relief broke from his parched lips and the color came back to his cheeks. Ask him to come in at once, Francis. He felt that he was himself again. His mood or cowardice had passed away. The man bowed and retired. In a few moments, Alan Campbell walked in, looking very stern and rather pale, his pallor being intensified by the coal-black hair and dark eyebrows. Alan, this is kind of you. I thank you for coming. I had intended never to enter your house again, Gray, but you said it was a matter of life and death. His voice was hard and cold. He spoke with slow deliberation. There was a look of contempt in the steady, searching gaze that he turned on Dorian. He kept his hands in his pockets of his uh, tracan coat and seemed not to have noticed the gesture with which he had been greeted. Yes, it is a matter of life and death, Alan, and more than one person. Sit down. Campbell took the chair by the table, and Dorian sat opposite to him. The two men's eyes met. In Dorian's there was infinite pity. He knew what he was going to do was dreadful. After a strained moan of silence, he leaned across and said, very quietly, but watching the effect of each word upon the face of him he had sent for, Alan, in a locked room at the top of the house, a room to which nobody but myself has access, a dead man is seated at the table. He's been dead ten hours now. Don't stir, and don't look at me like that. Eh, who the man is, why he died, how he died, are matters that do not concern you. What you have to do is this. Stop, Gray. I don't want to know anything further. Whether that you have told me is true or not true doesn't concern me. I entirely decline to be mixed up in your life. Keep your horrible secrets to yourself. 
They don't interest me anymore. Alan, they will have to interest you. This one will have to interest you. I'm awfully sorry for you, Alan, but I can't help myself. You are the one man who was able to save me. I'm forced to bring you into this matter. I have no option. Alan, you are scientific. You know about chemistry and things of that kind. You've made experiments. And what you have got to do is to destroy that thing upstairs. To destroy it so that not a vestige of it will be left. Nobody saw this person come into the house. Indeed, at the present moment, he is supposed to be in Paris. He will not be missed for months. When he is missed, there must be no trace of him found here. You, Alan, you must change him and everything that belongs to him into a handful of ashes that I may scatter into the air. You are mad, Dorian. Ah, I was waiting for you to call me, Dorian. You are mad. I tell you, mad to imagine that I would raise a finger to help you, and mad to make this monstrous confession. I will have nothing to do with this matter, whatever it is. Do you think I'm going to peril my reputation for you? What is it to me that the devil's work you're up to? It was suicide, Alan. I'm glad of that. But who drove him to it? You, I should fancy. Do you still refuse to do this for me? Of course I refuse. I will have absolutely nothing to do with it. I don't care what shame comes on you. You deserve it all. I should not be sorry to see you disgraced, publicly disgraced. How dare you ask me, of all men in the world, to mix myself up in this horror? I should have thought you knew more about people's characters. Your friend, Lord Henry Wotton, can't have taught you much about psychology, whatever else he has taught you. Nothing will induce me to stir to step and help you. You have come to the wrong man. Go to some of your friends. Don't come to me. Alan, it was murder. I killed him. You don't know what he had made me suffer. Whatever my life is, he had more to do with the making or marrying of it than poor Harry had. He may not have intended it. The result was the same. Murder? Good God, Dorian. Is that what you have come to? I shall not inform upon you. It is not my business. Besides, without my stirring in the matter, you are certain to be arrested. No one ever commits a crime without doing something stupid, but I will have nothing to do with it. You must have something to do with it. Wait, wait a moment. Listen to me. Only listen, Ellen. All I can ask of you is to perform a certain scientific experiment. You got a hospitals and dead houses, and the horrors that you do there don't affect you. If in some uh, hideous dissecting room or fetid laboratory you found this man lying on a leaden table with red gutters scooped out of it for the blood to flow through, you would simply look upon him as an admirable subject. You would not turn a hair. You would not believe that you were doing anything wrong. On the contrary... You would probably feel that you are benefiting the human race or increasing the sum of knowledge in the world or gratifying intellectual curiosity or something of that kind, period. Oh, my Lord. What I want you to do is merely what you have often done before. Indeed, to destroy a body must be far less horrible than what you are accustomed to work at. And remember, it is the only piece of evidence against me. If it is discovered, I am lost. And it is sure to be discovered unless you help me. I have no desire to help you. You forget that. I am simply indifferent to the whole thing. It has nothing to do with me. Alan, I entreat you. Think of the position I'm in. Just before you came, I almost fainted with terror. You may know terror yourself someday. No, 
Don't think of that. Look at the matter purely from the scientific point of view. You don't inquire where the dead things on which you experiment come from. Don't inquire now. I have told you too much as it is, but I beg of you to do this. We were friends once, Alan. Don't speak about those days, Dorian. They are dead. The dead linger sometimes. The man upstairs will not go away. He is sitting at a table with a bowed head and outstretched arms. Alan, Alan, if you don't come to my assistance, I am ruined. Why, they will hang me, Alan. Don't you understand? They will hang me for what I've done. There is no good in prolonging this scene. I absolutely refuse to do anything in the matter. It is insane of you to ask me. You refuse? Yes. I entreat you, Alan. It is useless. The same look of pity came into Dorian Gray's eyes. Then he stretched out his hand, took a piece of paper, and wrote something on it. He read it over twice, folded it carefully, and pushed it across the table. Having done this, he got up and went over to the window. Campbell looked at him in surprise. And then took out the paper and opened it. And as he read it, his face became ghastly pale and fell back in his chair. A horrible sense of sickness came over him. He felt as if his heart was beating itself to death in some empty hollow. After two or three minutes of terrible silence, Dorian turned around and came and stood behind him, putting his hand upon his shoulder. I am so sorry for you, Alan, he murmured. But you leave me no alternative. I have a letter written already. Here it is. You see the address. If you don't help me, I must send it. If you don't help me, I will send it. You know what the result will be, but you are going to help me. It is impossible for you to refuse now. I tried to spare you. You will do me the justice to admit that. You were stern, harsh, and offensive. You treated me as no man has ever dared treat me, no living man at any rate. I bore it all. Now it is for me to dictate terms. Campbell buried his face in his hands, and a shudder passed through him. Yes, it is my turn to dictate terms, Alan. You know what they are. The thing is quite simple. Come, don't work yourself into this fever. The thing has to be done. Face it and do it. A groan broke from Campbell's lips, and he shivered all over. The tickling of the clock. Tickling? Eh, fine. Ticking of the clock on the mantelpiece seemed to him to be dividing time into separate atoms of agony, each of which was too terrible to be born. He felt as if an iron ring was being slowly tightened around his forehead, as if the disgrace with which he was threatened had already come upon him. The hand upon his shoulder weighed like the hand of lead. It was intolerable. It seemed to crush him. Come, Alan, you must decide at once. I cannot do it, he said, mechanically, as though the words could alter things. You must. You have no choice. Don't delay. He hesitated a moment. Is there a fire in the room upstairs? Yes. There's a gas fire with asbestos. Ugh, that's bad news. I shall have to go home and get some things from the laboratory. No, Alan, you must not leave the house. Write out a sheet of notepaper what you want, and my servant will take a cab and bring the things back to you. Campbell, that's bad, leaving that kind of evidence. Campbell scrawled a few lines, blotted them, and addressed an envelope to his assistant. Dorian took the note up and read it carefully. Then he rang the bell and gave it to his valet, with orders to return as soon as possible and to bring the things with him. As the hall door shut, Campbell started nervously. Having got up from the chair, he went over to the chimney piece. He was shivering with the kind of ague. For nearly twenty minutes, neither of the men spoke. 
A fly buzzed noiselessly about the room, and the ticking of the clock was like the beat of a hammer. As the chimes struck one, Campbell turned around, looking at Dorian Gray, saw that his eyes were filled with tears. There was something in the purity and refinement of that sad face that seemed to engrage him. "'You are infamous, absolutely infamous,' he muttered. "'Hush, Alan. You have saved my life,' said Dorian. "'Your life? Good heavens! What a life it is! "'You've gone from corruption to corruption, and now you have culminated in a crime. "'In doing what I am going to do, what you forced me to do, "'it is not your life that I am thinking.' "'Ah, Alan,' murmured Dorian with a sigh. "'I wish you had a thousandth part of the pity for me that I have for you.' He turned away as he spoke and stood looking out at the garden. Campbell made no answer. After about ten minutes, a knock came to the door, and the servant entered, carrying a large mahogany chest of chemicals, with a long coil of steel and platinum wire and two rather curiously shaped iron clamps. "'Shall I leave the things here, sir?' He asked Campbell. Yes, said Dorian, and I am afraid, Francis, that I have another errand for you. What is the name of the man at Richmond who supplies Selby with orchids? Harden, sir. Yes, Harden. You must go down to Richmond at once, see Harden personally, and tell him to send twice as many orchids as I ordered, and uh, to have a few white ones as possible. In fact, I don't want any white ones. It is a lovely day, Francis, and Richmond is a very pretty place. Otherwise, I wouldn't bother you about it. No trouble, sir. At what time shall I be back? Dorian looked at Campbell. How long will your experiment take, Alan? He said in a calm, indifferent voice. The presence of a third person in the room seemed to give him extraordinary courage. Campbell frowned and bit his lip. It'll take uh, about five hours, he answered. It'll be enough time. Uh, there'll be time enough. Then, if you are back at half past seven, Francis, or stay, uh, just leave my things out for dressing. You can have the evening to yourself. I'm not dining at home, so I shall not want you. Thank you, sir, said the man leaving the room. Now, Alan, there's not a moment to be lost. How heavy this chest is. I'll take it for you. You bring the other things. He spoke rapidly and in an authoritative manner. Campbell felt dominated by him. They left the room together. When they reached the top landing, Dorian took out the key and turned it in the lock. Then he stopped, and a troubled look came into his eyes. He shuddered. I don't think I can go in, Alan murmured. It's nothing to me. I don't require you, said Campbell coldly. Dorian half opened the door. As he did so, he saw the face of his portrait leering in the sunlight. On the floor in front of it, the torn curtain was lying. He remembered that the night before he had forgotten for the first time in his life to hide the fatal canvas and was about to rush forward when he drew back with a shudder. What was that loathsome red dew that gleamed wet and glistening on one of his hands as though the canvas had sweated blood? How horrible it was. More horrible it seemed to him for the moment than the silent thing that he knew was stretched across the table. The thing whose grotesque misshapen shadow on the spotted carpet showed him that it had not stirred, but was still there, as he had left it. He heaved a deep breath, opened the door a little wider, and with half-closed eyes and averted head, 
walked quickly in, determined that he would not look even once upon the dead man. Then, stooping down and taking up the gold and purple hanging, he flung it right over the picture. There he stopped, feeling afraid to turn around, and his eyes fixed themselves on the intricacies of the pattern before him. He heard Campbell bringing in the heavy chest and the irons and the other things that he had required for his dreadful work. He began to wonder if he and Basil Hallward had ever met, and, if so, what they had thought of each other. "'Leave me now,' said a stern voice behind him. He turned and hurried out, just conscious that the dead man had been thrust back into the chair and that the Campbell was gazing into a glistening yellow face. As he was going downstairs, he heard the key being turned in the lock. It was long after seven when Campbell came back into the library. He was pale, but absolutely calm. "'I have done what you've asked me to do,' he muttered, "'and now goodbye. Let us never see each other again.' "'You have saved me from ruin, Alan. I cannot forget that,' said Dorian simply. As soon as Campbell had left, he went upstairs. There was a horrible smell of nitric acid in the room, but the thing that had been sitting at the table was gone.' skipping uh, reading the new book since these two chapters are going real, real long. So we're just going to dive straight into chapter 15. That evening at 8.30, exquisitely dressed and wearing a large buttonhole of Parma violets, Dorian Gray was, oh wow, that's Dorian Gray dressed that way? Oh boy. Uh, was ushered into Lady Narborough's drawing room by bowing servants. His forehead was throbbing with maddened nerves, and he felt wildly excited. But his manner, as he bent over his hostess's hand, was as easy and graceful as ever. Perhaps no one seems so much at one's ease as when one has to play a part. Certainly no one looking at Dorian Gray that night could have believed that he had passed through a tragedy as horrible as any tragedy of our age. Those finely shaped fingers could never have clutched a knife for sin, nor those smiling lips have cried out on God and goodness. He himself could not help wondering at the calm of his demeanor, and for a moment felt keenly the terrible pleasure of a double life. It was a small party, eh, got up rather in a hurry by Lady Narborough, who was a very clever woman with what Lord Henry used to describe as the remains of a really remarkable ugliness, just hates women. Everything in this book. She had proved an excellent wife to one of our most tedious ambassadors, and having buried her husband properly in a marble mausoleum, which she had herself designed, and married off her daughters to some uh, rich, rather elderly men, bleh, she devoted herself now to the pleasures of French fiction, French cookery, and French esprit. When she could get it, Dorian... That's one of her special favorites. And she always told him uh, that she was extremely glad she had not uh, met him in early life. <laughs> I know, my dear, I should have fallen madly in love with you, she used to say, and thrown my bonnet right over the mills for your sake. It is most fortunate that you were not of that time. As it was, our bonnets were so unbecoming and the mills were so occupied in trying to raise the wind that I never even had a flirtation with anybody. However, that was all Narborough's fault. 
He was dreadfully short-sighted, and there is no pleasure in taking a husband who never sees anything. Her guests this evening were rather tedious. The fact was, as she explained to Dorian behind a very shabby fan, one of her married daughters had come up quite suddenly to stay with her, and to make matters worse, had actually brought her husband with her. I think it is most unkind of her, my dear, she whispered. Of course, I go and stay with them every summer after I come from Hamburg. But then an old woman like me must have fresh air sometimes, and besides, I really wake them up. You don't know what an existence they lead down there. It is a pure, unadulterated country life. They get up early because they have uh, so much to do and go to bed early because they have so little to think about. There's not even a, been a scandal in the neighborhood since the time of Queen Elizabeth. And consequently, they all fall asleep after dinner. You shan't sit next to either of them. You shan't. You shall sit by me and amuse me. Dorian murmured a graceful compliment and looked around the room. Yes, it was certainly a tedious party. Two of the people I had never seen before. The others consisted of Ernest Harrowden, one of the middle-aged mediocrities so common in London clubs, who have no enemies but are thoroughly disliked by their friends. <laughs> Lady Ruxton, an overdressed woman of 47, with a hooked nose, who was always trying to get herself compromised, but was so particularly plain that to her great disappointment, no one would ever believe anything against her. Mrs. Erolyn, a pushing nobody with a delightful lisp, and Venetian red hair. Lady Alice Chapman, his hostess daughter, a dowdy, dull girl with one of those characteristic eh, British faces that, once seen, are never remembered. And her husband, a red-cheeked, white-whiskered creature who, like so many of his class, was under the impression that inordinate joviality can atone for an entire lack of ideas. He was rather sorry he had come to Lady Narborough, looking at the great armlow gilt clock that sprawled in gaudy curves on the mauve-draped mantel-shelf, exclaimed, "'How horrid of Henry Wan to be so late. I sent uh, around to him this morning, on chance, and he promised faithfully not to disappoint me.' It was some consolation that Harry was to be there, and when the door opened, he heard his slow, musical voice lending charm to some insincere apology. He ceased to feel bored. They have not really talked about why these two stopped talking. But at dinner, he could not eat anything. Plate after plate went away untasted. Lady Narborough kept scolding him for what she called an insult uh, to poor Adolf, who invented the menu especially for you. And now and then, Lord Henry looked across at him, Wondering at his silence and abstracted manner, from time to time the butler filled his glass with champagne. He drank eagerly, and his thirst seemed to increase. Dorian, said Lord Henry at last, as the shod Freud was being handed round, what is the matter with you tonight? You are quite out of sorts. I believe he's in love, cried Lady Narborough, and that he's afraid to tell me for fear I shall be jealous. He is quite right, I certainly should. "'Dear Lady Narborough,' murmured Dorian, smiling, "'I have not been in love for a whole week, "'not, in fact, since Madame de Fall left town.' "'How you men can fall in love with that woman!' exclaimed the old lady. "'I really cannot understand it. "'It is simply because she remembers you when you were a little girl, "'Lady Narborough,' said Lord Henry. "'She is the one link between us and your short frocks. 
She does not remember my short frocks at all, Lord Henry, but I remember her very well at Vienna thirty years ago and how decolette she was then. She is still decolette. I guess I'm saying it right. I don't know. It's a lot of French, he answered, taking an olive in his long fingers. And when she is a very smart gown, she looks like an addition deluxe of a bad French novel. She is really wonderful and full of surprises. Her capacity for family affection is extraordinary. When her third husband died, her hair turned quite gold from grief. How can you, Harry? cried Dorian. It is a most romantic explanation, laughed the hostess, but her third husband, Lord Henry, don't you mean to say Farrell is the fourth? Certainly, Lady Narborough. I don't believe a word of it. Well, ask Mr. Gray. He is one of her most intimate friends. Is it true, Mr. Gray? She assures me so, Lady Narborough, said Dorian. I asked her whether, like Margaret de Navarre, uh, she has her hearts embalmed and hung in her girdle. Uh, she told me she didn't, because none of them had had any hearts at all. Four husbands, upon my word. What is, is trop de lisi, trop de os, I tell her, said Dorian. I'm just making up words now. Oh, she is audacious enough for anything, my dear. And what is Farrell like? I don't know him. The husbands of uh, very beautiful women belong to the criminal classes, said Lord Henry, sipping his wine. Lady Narborough hit him with her fan. Lord Henry, I am not at all surprised that the world says you are extremely wicked. But what the world says that, asked Lord Henry, elevating his eyebrows, it can only be the next world. This world and I are on excellent terms. <laughs> "'Everybody I know says you are very wicked,' cried the old lady, shaking her head. "'Lord Henry looked serious for some moments. "'It is perfectly monstrous,' he said at last, "'the way people go on nowadays about things against one's behind one's back "'that are absolutely and entirely true.' "'Isn't he incorrigible?' cried Dorian, leaning forward in his chair. "'I hope so,' said the hostess, laughing. <laughs> "'But really, if you all worship Madame de Ferrell in this ridiculous way, "'I shall have to marry again so as to be in the fashion.' "'You will never marry again, Lady Narborough,' broke in Lord Henry. "'You are far too happy. "'When a woman marries again, it is because uh, she detested her first husband. "'When a man marries again, it is because he adored his first wife. "'They just... he just makes things up. "'He just says something and then says something contrary. "'It doesn't make any sense. "'Women try their luck. Men risk theirs. "'Narborough wasn't perfect,' cried the old lady. "'If he had been... "'You would not have loved him, my dear lady,' was the rejoinder. "'Women love us for our defects if we have enough of them. "'They will forgive us everything, even our intellects. "'You will never ask me to dinner again after saying this. "'I'm quite afraid, Lady Barbara, but it is quite true. "'Of course it's true, Lord Henry. "'If we women did not love you for your defects, where would you all be?' Not one of you would ever be married. You would be a set of unfortunate bachelors. Not, however, uh, that that would alter you much. Nowadays, all the married men live like bachelors, and all the bachelors like married men. <laughs> fin de sickle, murmured Lord Henry. Uh, fin du globe, answered his hostess. I wish it were fin du globe, said Dorian with a sigh. Life is a great disappointment. "'Ah, my dear,' cried Lady Narborough, putting on her gloves. "'Don't tell me that you have exhausted life. "'When a man says that 
<coughs> one knows that life has exhausted him. Lord Henry is very wicked, and I sometimes wish that I had been. But you are made to be good. You look so good. I must find you a nice wife. Lord Henry, don't you think that Mr. Gray should get married? I am always telling him so, Lady Narborough, said Lord Henry with a bow. Well, we must look out for a suitable match for him. I shall go through Durbit carefully tonight and draw out a list of all the eligible young ladies. Mm, with their ages, Lady Narborough asked Dorian. Of course with their ages, slightly edited, mm, but nothing must be done in a hurry. I want it to be that Morning Post calls a suitable alliance, and I want you both to be happy. What nonsense people talk about happy marriages, explored Lord Henry. A man can be happy with any woman as long as he does not love her. Mm. Ah, what a cynic you are, cried the old lady, pushing back her chair and nodding to Lady Ruxton. You must come and dine with me soon again. You are really an admirable tonic, much better than what Sir Andrew prescribes for me. You must tell me what people would like to meet through. I want it to be a delightful gathering. I like men who have a future and women who have a past, he answered. Hmm. Or you think that you would make it a petticoat party? I fear so, she said, laughing as she stood up. A thousand pardons, my dear Lady Ruxton, she added. I didn't see you hadn't finished your cigarette. Never mind, Lady Narborough, I smoke a great deal too much. I am going to live it myself for the future. Pray don't, Lady Ruxton, said Lord Henry. Oh, Lord Henry is obsessed with cigarettes, like he works for a cigarette company. Moderation is a fatal thing. Enough is as bad as a meal. More than enough is as good as a feast. Lady Ruxton glanced at him curiously. You must come and explain that to me some afternoon, Lord Henry. It sounds fascinating theory, she murmured as she swept out of the room. Now mind you don't stay too long over your politics and scandal, cried Lady Narborough from the door. If you do, we are sure to squabble upstairs. The men laughed, huh? And Mr. Chapman got up solemnly from the foot of the table and came up to the top. Dorian Gray changed his seat and went and sat by Lord Henry. Mr. Chapman began to talk in a loud voice about the situation in the House of Commons. He guffawed at his adversaries. The word doctrinaire, a word full of terror to the British mind, reappeared from time to time between his explosions. An alliterative prefix served as an ornament of of oratory. He hoisted the Union Jack on the pinnacles of thought. The inherited stupidity of the race, as sound English common sense, he jovially termed it, was shown to be the proper bulwark for society. A smile curved Lord Henry's lips, and he turned round to look at Dorian. Are you better, my dear fellow? he asked. You seem rather out of sorts at dinner. I am quite well, Harry. I am tired, that is all. You were charming last night. Uh, the little Duchess is quite devoted to you. She tells me she's going down to Selby. Mm. She has promised to come on the 20th. Is Monmouth to be there too? Oh, yes, Harry. He bores me dreadfully, almost as much as he bores her. She is very clever, too clever for a woman. Ugh. She lacks the indefinable charm of weakness. It is the feet of clay that make the gold of the image precious. Her feet are very pretty, eh, but they are not feet of clay. White, porcelain feet, if you like. They have been through the fire, and what fire does not destroy, it hardens. She has had experiences. How long has she been married? asked Dorian. An eternity, she tells me. I believe, according to the peerage, it is uh, ten years. But ten years with Monmouth must be like an eternity. 
with time thrown in. Uh, who else is coming? Oh, the Wilburys. Lord Rugby and his wife, our hostess. Geoffrey, Clouston, the usual set. I have asked Lord Groshen. I like him, said Lord Henry. A great many people don't, but I find him charming. He atones for being occasionally somewhat overdressed by always absolutely overeducated. Uh, he is a very modern type. I don't know if he'll ever be able to come, Harry. He may have to go to Monte Carlo with his father. Ah, what a nuisance people's people are. Try to make him come. By the way, Dorian, you ran off very early last night. You left before 11. What did you do afterwards? Did you go straight home? Dorian glanced at him hurriedly and frowned. No, Harry, he said at last. I did not get home till nearly three. Did you go to the club? Yes, he answered. Then he bit his lip. No, I don't mean that. I didn't go to the club. I walked about. I forget what I did. How inquisitive you are, Harry. You always want to know what one has been doing. I always want to forget what I've been doing. <laughs> I came in at half past two. If you wish to know the exact time, I had left my latch key at home and my servant had to let me in. If you want any corroborative evidence on the subject, you can ask him. Lord Henry, that's pretty... Really suspiciously specific. Lord Henry shrugged his shoulders. My dear fellow... As if I cared. Let us go up to the drawing room. No, Sherry. Thank you, Mrs. Chapman. Something has happened to you, Dorian. Tell me what it is. You are not yourself tonight. Eh, eh, don't mind me, Harry. I am irritable and out of temper. I should come around and see you tomorrow or uh, next day. Uh, make my excuses to Lady Narborough. I shan't go upstairs. I shall go home. I must go home. All right, Dorian, I dare say I shall see you tomorrow at tea time. The Duchess is coming. So I guess they have been hanging out this whole time. They make it sound like they haven't talked in, like, years. And all of a sudden they were talking about how they saw each other the other night. I'll try to be there, Harry, he said, leaving the room as he drove back to his own house. He was conscious that the sense of terror he thought he had strangled had come back to him. Lord Henry's uh, casual questioning had made him lose his nerve for the moment, and he wanted his nerve still. Things that were dangerous had to be destroyed. He winced. He hated the idea of even touching them. Yet it had to be done. He realized that. And when he had locked the door of his library, he opened the secret press into which he had thrust Basil Hallward's coat and bag. A huge fire was blazing. He piled another log on it. The smell of the singeing clothes and burning leather was horrible. It took him three quarters of an hour to consume everything. At the end, he felt faint and sick. And having lit some Algerian pastels and a pierced copper brazier, he bathed his hands and forehead with a cool, musk-scented vinegar. Suddenly, he started. His eyes grew strangely bright, and he gnawed nervously at his underlip. Between two of the windows stood a large Florentine cabinet made out of ebony and inlaid with ivory. Oh, here comes more detail about how fantastic every single thing in this guy's house is, even down to, like, the spoons. He watched it as though... It were a thing that could fascinate and make afraid, as though it held something that he longed for and yet almost loathed. His breath quickened. A mad craving came over him. He lit a cigarette and then threw it away. His eyelids drooped till the long fringed lashes almost touched his cheek. But he still watched the cabinet. At last he got up from the sofa on which he had been lying, went over to it, and having unlocked it, touched some hidden spring. 
A triangular drawer passed slowly out. His fingers moved instinctively toward it and dipped in and closed in on something. It was a small Chinese box of black and gold dust lacquer, elaborately wrought with a guide, with the size pattern and curved waves, and the silken cords hung with the round crystals and tassels of plated metal threads. Great, he opened it there. Inside was a green paste, waxy in luster. The odor, curiously heavy and persistent. He hesitated for some moments, with a strangely immobile smile upon his face. Then, shivering, though the atmosphere of the room was terribly hot, he drew himself up and glanced at the clock. It was twenty minutes to twelve. He put the box back, shutting the cabinet door as he did so, and went to his bedroom. As midnight was striking bronze blows upon the dusky air, Dorian Gray dressed commonly and with a muffler wrapped around his throat, crept quietly out of the house. In Bond Street, he found a hansom with a good horse. He hailed it. What makes it a good horse? Just for walking around the city. Has it got, like, nice legs? How can you tell? He hailed it, and in a low voice gave the driver an address. The man shook his head. It is too far for me, he muttered. Here's a sovereign for you, said Dorian. You shall have another if you drive fast. Oh, all right, sir, answered the man. You will be there in an hour. <clears throat> and after this fare had got in, he turned the horse round and drove rapidly toward the river. Well, what did we learn? Besides the potential death of a shooting I saw this evening, we learn that Dorian gets Alan to come over. And uh, a little bit of lazy writing. Alan doesn't want to destroy the body that's hiding upstairs in the room. He says, I don't want to take a part in it. And then uh, the lazy part being that Dorian just writes something secret on a piece of paper and says, the world's going to know about this unless you do it. And then Alan's all distraught. As if he didn't know ahead of time that he's going to get blackmailed for something. Uh, and then he goes and does it. Uh, sloppy for the characters is that uh, instead of letting Alan go get his chemistry set, Dorian sends his valet to go get it. So there's evidence there with something crazy going on. And, uh, and then sends the valet off. Get out of here. I don't need you. Don't come back. So, eh, a little weird. But uh, thanks to the power of science Alan gets rid of the body magically up there in the room without blood all over the place chapter 15 uh, Dorian goes to dinner and it's more of the same magic that we fell in love with in the beginning where uh, Lord Harry's there and he gives Dorian a hard time about getting married uh, Henry says a lot of horrible things about women in general and of course the women in the story just agree and nod pleasantly as they hear all this stuff and then uh, basically he says, Dorian, you don't seem like yourself. Dorian says, uh, uh, if you leave me alone, I came home at a reasonable time, asked my valet. And then uh, now they have plans to get together the next morning. But Dorian goes home. And in more uh, overly illustrative uh, text, we find out that a chest of drawers, of course, in his house is the most magnificent thing ever made on the face of the earth and Dorian owns it. It's got a secret compartment that he pulls out a box. Not just any old box. It's the most beautiful box ever created on God's earth that he pulls out some sort of chain and then Dorian heads out for the night. 
so that's mysterious. Maybe he's got a lust for murder that he wants to go do some more of. And that's where we left off. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the story. Uh, and uh, I hope you can sleep tonight. I know I'm going to have a tough time. Uh, and I hope you tune in for the next episode. <laughs>